that in mind, we now read uh, chapter 8. This is God's word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plough his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people... He repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Okay, let's um, pray and we'll ask God for uh, understanding. Father in heaven, please uh, open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your law. And Father, give us your spirit that he might empower us to not only hear but also to be doers of your word uh, because we want to be transformed uh, by your word and by your spirit so that our lives would bring glory to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this uh, book of 1 Samuel, it began in a big mess, a big mess. The, the Israelites at the start of this book were in a big mess because remember it follows on from Judges 
And the end of Judges says that everyone was doing as they saw fit in their own eyes. Uh, the, their spiritual leaders at the start were completely corrupt. They even lost the ark of God. And so they were in a complete mess. And yet all along we've seen that God has been incredibly gracious to his people. He's raised up Samuel to be a faithful uh, judge, a faithful prophet and priest. And uh, God single-handedly defeated the Philistines, brought back the Ark of the Covenant to his people. And through Samuel, in the last chapter that we looked at in, in 1 Samuel, we saw how uh, through Samuel, God led the people to repentance and restoration with him. And so after all of that trouble, all of that mess, things were put back in order. And the people lived under the rule of God with Samuel as their judge. And that went really well for the rest of Samuel's life until he gets old. And uh, that's where we start here in chapter 8. Uh, we, when we come to chapter 8, it actually looks like things are going full circle back into all of the mess that was right at the beginning. Because Samuel's now old, he appoints his sons as judges, <clears throat> which, by the way, was something never done before. Uh, normally, if they needed to judge, God would raise one up as needed. Uh, but for some reason, Samuel appoints his sons as judges, and it's a disaster because his sons are just a couple of uh, Darrows. Uh, they, they don't know what they're doing. And they're in this position of power and they use it <clears throat> for personal gain. Okay, This is corruption all over again. R remember Eli's sons who were using their position of power for personal gain. Corruption. It's all happening again. Things are falling apart all over again. And as a result, we're told that this time the elders of Israel, they, they can see what's happening. They go to Samuel and they complain to him. And uh, in doing so, they, they actually suggest a new way forward for the nation. Okay, it's like they're, they're saying, you know, things have never worked. We've got to do things differently from now on. Here's what we're suggesting. And what do they suggest? They say in verse 5, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel, it seems, takes this personally. Okay, he kind of sees it as a, a rejection of him personally. And so he goes and talks to God about that. And uh, the Lord says to him, what are you complaining for, Samuel? It's not you they've rejected, but they've actually rejected me. And uh, you know, God goes on to say they've been doing that from the get-go. You know, ever since I saved them out of Egypt, that's what they've always done. They've rejected me all the time. Uh, God actually says in verse 7, they have rejected me from being king over them. So here's the problem, the underlying problem. They have rejected God from being king over them. Now, I, I begin with this long intro, which is a bit of a recap on the, the story so far. But I do that because when you get to this chapter, it raises a massive question. And the question is, is it wrong for Israel to have a human king? Okay, if God is their king, is it wrong for them to request a human king? 
And that, that is the question. This passage, it draws us in to ask. There's a whole lot of ambiguities here which are meant to make us go, huh? Why is it saying that? And it does that because it's drawing us in. It's getting us to ask the question and to start searching for the answer. And what happens that when we start searching, we realize that what is really being searched is us as the readers. Okay, this passage is searching us. This is a passage that it's written in a, in a certain way so that we see behind the elder's request is a mirror that when we look into, we actually see what is really going on in our own lives. Uh, this is a, a passage that reveals the deep problem of the human heart, and it's the problem of not wanting God to be king. Okay, the deep problem of the human heart struggles to accept God's kingship over our lives. That's what this passage is about. So let's look at, let's look at this whole issue of um, kingship. You know, the question of God being king, the, the question of is it wrong for Israel to have a king? And so we'll look at three things, the king they want, we'll look at the king they get, and finally we'll consider the king that we need. So first, let's look at the king they want. Uh, this, this request for a king, let's just think it through for a bit. And the first thing to understand is that uh, there was nothing wrong with God's people having a king. Okay, that's something that's made very clear right from the beginning of the Bible. If we were to go through from Genesis all the way up to 1 Samuel, we would see that all along God's people were going to have a king. Okay, right when God called Abraham and made that covenant with Abraham, God actually said to Abraham, kings will come from you. Uh, when Jacob um, blessed his sons, uh, Jacob predicted that from Judah, from the line of Judah, there would one day be a ruler who would hold the scepter and the ruler's staff, which were symbols of kingship. Uh, in God's law, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, that's that passage that Matt read, we had the instructions for the type of king that Israel would have one day. And uh, then in the book of Judges, which comes right before 1 Samuel, it ended with that statement, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did as they saw fit, which kind of gives you the impression that now is the time that Israel need a king. And then 1 Samuel, it began with the story of Hannah, who was, child, uh, did, uh, was barren. She prayed for a child, God answered her prayer, she had Samuel. When she praises God and, and has that prayer, the very end of it says that God will give strength to his anointed, to his king. And so all along through the Bible, there's this, this being this big build up to God's people are going to have a king, a human king to rule over them. Uh, they would be ruled by a faithful king, a king who would lead the people in faithfulness to God, who is their ultimate king. And, uh, you know, from the perspective of the New Testament, when we look back, we actually know that it was always central to God's plan for his people to have a king. The king of kings, okay, the Messiah, that was, that's the whole point of God's plan. Which then begs the question, 
Why then is there all of this tension in this passage over God's people asking for a king? Why, why does God say this is actually a rejection of me? Hey, do you feel the tension here? What's going on? Well, let's have a look at the request a little bit more closely. So in verse 5, um, the people say, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Like all the nations. And uh, on its own, that could just mean, hey, the, the nations around us have kings. Why can't we have a king? It could just mean that. But then when you read on, you realize that there's actually a lot more behind it. A lot more behind this idea of a king like all the nations because when Samuel goes on to describe what a king like the nations is like, uh, the people, they dig their heels in, they go, no, no, no. They say in verse uh, 19, no, there shall be a king over us. Verse 20, that we may also be like all the nations. And so it turns out that what's actually going on here is a crisis of identity. The people of God have forgotten who they are. They've forgotten who they have been saved to be. Uh, as God's people, they belonged to the Lord, which meant that they were unique in the among the nations. Completely unique. Uh, they were a people who were chosen, who were set apart uh, from God, who were called to be holy. And uh, that, that was what God continually reminded them of. He continually reminded them that he'd saved them from Egypt so that they could be a holy nation. Okay, because God is holy, they are to be holy. Now, holy, what does it mean? It just means to be set apart. Set apart for God. That was their very identity. They were a holy people, and therefore that was to shape everything about them. It was to shape... Uh, everything about them so that they would be unlike the nations. Unlike the nations. And so that meant that when Israel did eventually get a king, that it would be a king unlike the nations. Uh, the point of those instructions in Deuteronomy 17 was that the king was not to have excessive wealth or to have excessive wealth, uh, sorry, uh, military power or excessive wives, as all of the kings of the nations did. And that's because his focus was not to be on wealth, or on power, or on pleasure, but on faithfulness to the Lord. And therefore, as you would have remembered in those instructions in Deuteronomy 17, that the king was to write a copy of the law. He was to meditate on it daily, so that he could lead the people in faithfulness, in holiness. But we see here that the Israelites, they don't want a king like that. They don't want a king like, uh, no, they want a king like all the nations. Which means they're really saying, we don't want to be holy. Okay, we don't want to be the people that God has called us to be. We actually just want to be about power and wealth and pleasure. That's what they're saying. They just want to be like the world, like the nations. They've actually forgotten who they were saved to be. Now, the other reason we see uh, for why they ask for a king like the nations, it's at the end of verse 20. 
where they say uh, that they want a king, verse 20, uh, who, who will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, that's a very strange thing to say because up until this point, what has God been doing for them as a nation? He's been going out before them and fighting their battles. Uh, that was what happened in the very last chapter of 1 Samuel. Uh, we looked at it three weeks ago. Um, but remember, after the people um, were led to repentance, uh, the Philistines attacked them, and God miraculously defeated the Philistines. He just, there was this loud, booming noise from heaven, put all the, uh, the Philistines into confusion, and they were all defeated. And God had done that over and over again. Gone out and defeated their enemies and saved them. And they even set up a stone. Remember that stone called Ebenezer? Where they said, till now the Lord has helped us. Okay, so they, they knew that. <laughs> they had a stone there so they wouldn't forget. And yet what's happened? They've forgotten already. And they, instead they want a king. They've put their hope in a king instead of God. So they want a king in place of God. So no wonder God says to Samuel, they have rejected me from being king over them. And so it's not that kingship in Israel was wrong, but it was the type of king that they wanted which was wrong. It was the, the, um, the, the motive for why they wanted the king that was wrong. Because they just wanted to be like the world. It was a rejection of God as king. Now, um, you've probably experienced this before, but you know when you read the Old Testament and you, and you see this kind of forgetfulness going on, this, this um, you know, something that seems very illogical, and you think to yourself, what a bunch of idiots. What is wrong with these people? How could they be so foolish? How could they forget so quickly? I mean, they had a stone set up so that they wouldn't forget. And yet they've forgotten. And we think, what is wrong with them? But do you realize that whenever you think like that, you need to stop and go, hang on a minute. If I'm saying that, I'm missing the point. And if I'm saying that, what I'm really doing is condemning myself. Because if we're actually honest with ourselves, we need to realize that we do exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. If we're honest with ourselves, this, when we read chapter 8, it's like looking into a mirror. It's revealing exactly the struggle that we have today. You see, as believers in Jesus, as the church, do you realize we have the very same identity that Israel had? We are called to be what? A holy nation. Uh, we are God's saved people. We are his covenant people. And just as God said to his old covenant people, be holy because I am holy, that's exactly what he says to his church today. You can read that in 1 Peter uh, 1 verse 16. And in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, you know, it says the church is God's chosen race, is a royal priesthood, a holy nation, which means that the church is to be different from the world. Uh, believers are to be different from the world. And yet that is the thing that we struggle with. That is the thing that we find so hard. Why? 
It's because our hearts are drawn to those same things that were seen in the kings of the nations. Power, pleasure, wealth. Those are the things that grip our hearts. They're really the idols of this world. And those idols, they find a place in our own hearts and become the things that we seek after. And, and you know as much as me that you can be a, a believer, you can be a Christian, and yet still find yourself being driven by the very same desires, the very same goals, uh, the very same values as the world. You know, so for example, we can say that we trust in God and yet if, if our hearts were put under a, you know, like an x-ray, you know, something that would reveal what is really driving your heart, you'll find that it's so often, it's not trust in God, but rather trust in something else. So for example, in money and possessions, you know, we're constantly telling ourselves if we can just get more, then we will be happy. If we can just get more, then we will be safe and secure. Uh, like the world, we, we tend to value power and success far more than we value compassion and humility. Now, it's why we, we still tend to honour, uh, you know, those who have jobs that, that are more successful, you know, higher paying. Uh, we seem to give more credit to those people. Uh, it's because we love power and success. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if many of us here... Um, if we were to look at our use of time, how much of our time goes into pursuing pleasure and entertainment instead of purity and edification in God's word? Okay, what kind of, what kind of time do we spend doing that? Uh, you know, that's, what, the, what does the world do? We live in a culture that really worships pleasure and entertainment. And we find that in the church. And so it's no surprise that in this culture of, worship, uh, sorry, of pleasure and entertainment that so many find worship such a struggle, whether that's private worship or public worship like we're doing now. Uh, many find it a struggle in this culture. It's no surprise that churches these days spend big money on trying to make their Sunday worship more uh, entertaining, uh, more exciting, uh, in fact, just this week, I noticed that this is, it even impacts sermon time. Uh, just this week, there was a series of articles on the Gospel Coalition, the Australian um, Gospel Coalition, which is a website which has normally some really good articles. And uh, this week, they were kind of debating the, um, the length of a sermon. What is the ideal sermon uh, length of time? And what do you reckon it is? 18 minutes, okay? That, that's one of the main views. 18 minutes is the ideal sermon length uh, in this um, generation, which means that's it. <laughs> We've got to close now. I think I am at 18 minutes. But, yeah, but then you think about that. You know, if our Netflix episodes were 18 minutes long, we would want our money back, okay? And it makes you wonder, is it because people today just find God's word so boring that 20 minutes is too much. You know, we're bored. Move on. Something new. Let's be entertained. See, what this passage shows us is that this desire to be like all the nations, 
this desire to be like the world, what it actually is, it's rejecting God as king. It's saying, God, we don't want you ruling over us. You're boring. You're too much. You're too difficult. And so whenever we embrace these idols of the world, this quest for power, pleasure, wealth, what are we doing? We're saying, God, we don't want you to be king over us anymore. It's like James 4, verse 4. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That sounds very strongly put, but that's, that's actually how it is. So we need to realize God actually is the king. He is the king. And he is the king who is holy. And he calls us as his people to be holy as he is holy. That actually means being different from the world. And that's something that we struggle with so much. Now, remember when you were little, some of you, some of you that's pretty easy, but remember when you're little, you don't want to stand out. You know, the biggest uh, nightmare that you could think of is turning up to school in your school uniform on the casual dress day. You know, you'd rather die than stand out like that. And we desperately want to fit in. And it's something I'm not sure we ever really grow out of, unless, of course, we're changed at the heart by Christ. But see, for those who belong to Christ, we're actually supposed to be different from the world. And it's not because we're better than the world. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because we're stronger, because we're clearly not. But the reason why we're supposed to be different is because by God's grace, we've actually found that God is more satisfying than all of the power, all of the pleasure, and all of the wealth that the world has to offer. Okay, it's by God's grace that we, we've actually found the pearl of great price. We've found the living water that satisfies the soul. We've actually found the true treasure, which is Christ himself. And when you find him, and when you know him, you know that there is nothing better you can have. You know, to have Christ, when you really have him and you know him, then all of the things of the world, they lose their appeal. Okay, that's how idols are dethroned and uh, where Christ uh, is king of your life. And so getting back to the Israelites, it wasn't there that their request for a king itself was wrong. It was this desire to be like the world. It was this motive of wanting to get rid of God as king. That's what was wrong. That's why God said they've rejected me, because they just wanted to be like the world. That's the king they want. But then the second thing we see here is the king they get. The king they get. So have a look at verse 9, uh, where God says to Samuel, Obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So this is God saying, look, fine, have it your way. If you want a king like the nations, you can have one. Only understand what you're getting yourself into. Okay, there's a warning that comes with that. And verses 10 to 18 are the warnings about what the king like the nations is like. And Samuel, um, he lays out the ways of the king. And you need to realize he's not laying out what happens when a king goes off the rails. Okay, he's not warning them of, of a bad king. He's saying this is what a normal king of, like, from the world looks like. And what are his normal ways? 
Did you notice when I read it that word take? He will take. That is repeated over and over again because that's what characterizes the king like all the nations. He will take. He will take over and over again. He's not a king who gives. He's a king who takes. He will take your sons and daughters, he says. He will take your property. He will take your money. He will take, he will take, he will take. Why? Because that's the normal practices of a king. A king like the nations, what are they about? They're about power. They're about wealth. They're about pleasure. And to get all of those things, you need resources. And so they will take. They will take them off the people. That's just how it is with a king. But see, God is not like that. God is the king who gives and gives and gives. Uh, Acts 17 says that God gives life and breath and everything to everyone. He's the king who gives abundantly. And yet the people, they don't want God as king. They want to be free from his rule. They want to rule themselves. And if you look at the end of verse 17, notice how God says that when they get the king they want, he says, you shall be his slaves. Do you know that's what happens when you replace God with something else in your life? You become enslaved to that thing. Whatever it is that, that you make as your king, you become enslaved to it. That's just the way it is. So Samuel, he solemnly warned them. Then you get to verse 19. The people, they refused to listen. They say, no, a king will rule over us. And Samuel goes to God, what do I do? God says, obey their voice and make them a king. You know, sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you is you get what you want. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you is that God gives you the cravings of your heart. And uh, it's kind of like, um, you know, Romans 1, where God's judgment is described, and his judgment is described as just giving you over to your passions. That's how God's judgment works out in the here and now. And in, in some ways that's happening with Israel. God is letting the people experience the consequences of their choice, of their rebellion. He, he's actually, in many ways, this is actually an act of discipline. God giving them the king they're asking for. He's disciplining them. It's kind of like, um, you know when you go down to the bay in the middle of winter with your children and you're there for about five minutes and they start saying, hey, can we go in the water? You know, we'll only go up to our knees and you go, no, no, you can't go in the water because I know what's going to happen if you go in only up to your knees. Okay? We don't have a towel. We don't have a change of clothes. You're going to be freezing cold, and then we'll have to go home early. The whole day will be ruined. And the child forgets that obedience is to be without challenge. And they insist, no, 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 I will only go up to my knees. Just let me go in. Please let me go in. What do you do as a parent? I'll tell you what you do. You say, okay. Fine, in you go. And the inevitable happens. And five minutes later, freezing cold, wanting to go home, so everyone in the car, the day is ruined. <laughs> now, why do you do that as a parent? It's not because you want to promote disobedience. You do it because sometimes you just, let you, you just need to let your children 
feel the consequences of rebellion. You just need to, need to let them experience it to see the misery of disobedience and see that's what God is doing here. Sometimes God will let you have what you want even though it's wrong. So you feel the misery of it. So you feel the slavery of it. And see, the Israelites, they're actually about to find out the hard way that their desire to be free from God's rule, their desire to be like the world, it's not as glamorous as it looks. It would only lead to misery. See, that was true for them. It's true for us today as well. In fact, right there, that, that is actually the problem of humanity in general. This is the problem with the world. Why is the world the way it is? Why is there so much misery, so much fighting, so much division? Why is all of that there? It is because of this very issue that is being revealed in the passage. We don't want God to be king. Okay, We want to be king. That is the very heart of what's wrong with this world. It all goes back to the beginning, the very first sin. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve. They lived in perfect fellowship with God, with God as their king. And then the deceiver came along and they listened to his lies, listened to his lies saying, you know, living under God's kingship is, is awful, it's a burden, it's oppressive. Wouldn't it be great to be free of that? Wouldn't it be great to make your own laws, to rule yourself? Adam and Eve gave in. They, they went along with it, even though God had solemnly warned them of the consequences. But they ignored him. They wanted to be their own king. And we've been living in the misery of that ever since. Okay, and as a result, we've all inherited a heart that at its very core says, I don't want God to rule over me. Okay, unless we're born again, we're going to spend our whole lives striving to, to get rid of God as king, and wanting to dethrone him and put ourselves in that place on the throne of our own lives. And so the worst thing that can happen to you, the worst thing that can happen to you is for God to simply give you your heart's desire and to leave you in that for all of eternity. But there's some good news here. There's good news. Because even though the people in this passage were determined to get the king they wanted, it didn't stop God from being determined to giving the king that they need. Okay, and that's our last point, the king we need. Because this passage reveals, as the whole Bible does, <clears throat> that we actually we need a king, and we need a king to save us. We actually need a king to save us from ourselves. We need a king to save us from our sin and from the misery that sin brings in our own lives and in the world. We need a king to save us from the judgment that we so richly deserve for rejecting God as king. But you see, we need a king who is not caught up in the mess of sin himself. We need a king who's not driven by the passions of the world, you know, who's not just after power and wealth and pleasure. We need a king who actually fulfills the requirements of, of Deuteronomy 17, a king who, 
who knows God's ways, who loves God's ways and who leads his people in God's ways. That's the king we need. And so who will that king be? Will it be this next king, this King Saul? No. Will it be David? Maybe. But then you get to 2 Samuel. No, it's not. It's none of these kings. It's not until you get to the New Testament, until you get to Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the king we need. See, Jesus, he's the king that when questioned by Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? What did Jesus say? He said, my kingdom is not from this world. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying, I'm not a king like all the nations. That means he's not a king who takes and takes and takes. He's not a king who, who serves only himself, who is just all about power and, and just using people to advance his own power. He's not a king like that. He's actually a king who came to serve. And he's a king who doesn't take, he's a king who gives. A king who gave his life as a ransom for many. And so it's when Jesus gave his life on the cross, that's how we can be saved from our sin and our rebellion and brought back into fellowship with God, back under his rule, which is the only freedom there is. Because it's a freedom from slavery. And all those things that we do pursue in the world, the power, the wealth, the pleasure, all those things that only enslave, Jesus, he's the king who says, come to me and I'll set you free. I'll set you free from all of that. See, he's the king we need. So the question today is, is he your king? Is Jesus your king? And if he is, Are you living differently to the world? Are you living a holy life because you've actually found him to be refreshingly unlike the world, unlike the kings of the nations? You found him to be a good king, a king whose love is better than life. Have you found that? See, meditate on the glory of Christ, the king who gives himself for us, and that's how you'll be transformed. That's how the things of this earth will just look like, like rubbish when you have the true king. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder of the king that we need. And we do thank you for Jesus, that he, he came into this world and he didn't just go along with the ways of the world. He wasn't just about power and success and, and impressing people. He wasn't just about... Uh, getting more and more stuff and just living for his own pleasure. We thank you, Father, that in every decision, in every word, in every action, that it was always about giving, of being selfless, of being, of loving a compassionate king, a king who would be willing to touch the unlovely and a king who would be willing to go after the lost and even to do that at, at huge expense of himself, of, of actually giving himself to death. We thank you for Jesus, Lord. We thank you that that by him we're saved, that we're set free from all the slavery of, of the world and the flesh and the devil. And we thank you, Father, that we're brought into his kingdom, his kingdom that's different from the world, kingdom that's um, all about love and service and kindness and humility. And so, Lord, help us to embrace that, to embrace the, the people that he saved us to be 
And we pray, Father, that where we are struggling with these idols of, of power and pleasure and wealth, that we would be able to look to Christ and that in him we'd be able to dethrone those things from our lives and walk in his ways and know this freedom that he saved us to have. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.